This is a crowd podcast. Hello, I'm Geraint Thomas. And I'm Tom Fordyce. And you've just entered the Geraint Thomas Cycling Club. Brought to you by Zwift, the indoor cycling app where fun is fast. Welcome. Tom, this is a big day, possibly the biggest so far of the club, I think. It's official. The GTCC jersey is finally here. And I just want to congratulate you, even though <laughs> I don't think you did too much. I think you delegated well, though. And it's here. It looks pretty good, doesn't it? I'm really chuffed with it. So as you know, we gave you two options on our socials last week. Gee, I don't know if you've seen the results. I will give you a drum roll. It's the grey one. Gotta say, I'm very happy with that. Grey was my favourite. We both secretly liked the grey one, didn't we? Yeah. (laughs) Now you've actually stuck one on. I haven't seen one in the flesh yet, but you've... You've modelled one, albeit only to your wife and a one-year-old son. <laughs> How is it? Yeah, it's really nice, actually. It's, um, you know, it's one thing seeing it in, um, you know, on computer screen and stuff and on your phone, but really nice. But uh, yeah, it definitely isn't a pro fit, put it that way. It's kind of weird because I'm used to, yeah, yeah, that's definitely good for the club, isn't it? But um, yeah, I'm just so used to like, you know, tailor-made stuff, basically, you know, they come and measure you up and... It's all like tight fitting and this and that. And this one is definitely uh, boxy maybe, but in a good way. It's, uh, you know, baggy in places and the arms are flapping. I feel like Wout Powell's wearing it. He's, he's got the skinniest <laughs> arms in the peloton. So at least it's good for my morale. So yeah, win-win all around, I think. It's good for your morale and it's good for the morale of your amateur friends because when something is flappy on you, it is pleasingly skin tight on those of us who aren't professional cyclists. So this is excellent news. It ticks all the boxes. Yeah, and listen, I need to put my hand up here, G. You know how I work as chairperson of this club. I did have quite a bit of help on this. So if you followed this club from the beginning, you'll know that we ambushed Sir Paul Smith back in episode three. He kindly mocked up the design for us. And then the boffins at Castelli have actually made the thing. Mine has been very much the helicopter view. But I think I can take a little bit of credit and I'm delighted with it. Yeah, and here's the important info. You can go and pre-order your jersey now. All you got to do, go to garantomas.com and click on the shop. Easy. And also, critically, we have got a whole range of sizes. We've got male jerseys, we've got female-specific jerseys. So hopefully there'll be something for everyone. I know some people are aware that Castelli often sizes up a little bit small, So it might be an idea to go up at least a size. We'll put information like that on the shop and it should all make sense. But fingers crossed, there's something for you there. Get in there quick, start repping the GTCC. And G, even better on a day of great news, if you're as rifter as you and I are, we can also announce that the virtual in-game jersey will be available from Wednesday the 28th of April. So now, when you come along to the GTCC group ride at 6pm, you can unlock the jersey. Yeah, that's going to be weird, isn't it? Seeing people bowling around Utopia with uh, the GTCC jersey on. And, uh, well, even weirder, on the UK roads or all over the world. So, um, yeah, I think we're just going to have to sort out our nod or, you know, GTCC signal to each other, really. Yeah, so I've given this a bit of thought because it needs to be something that I think comes from you and your riding successes. So initially I thought it should be the double sort of clenched fists that you greeted your victory and outdoers in the 2018 tour. 
But then I thought actually that involves taking both hands off the bars. So if people are riding on maybe pothole British roads or don't have your uh, core strength, then both hands off the bars might be a bad idea. And then, and then I thought, do you remember what Cav used to do when he rode for HTC, who made mobile phones, didn't they? He used, to, he used to get his thumb and his little finger and make a little phone sign and put it to his head. So I thought, on this podcast, you and I use microphones. Why isn't the official nod to a fellow GTCC member in a jersey just simply putting one hand in front of your face as if you're holding a microphone? <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm all for that, yeah. I think either, yeah, the microphone or... Or, if, or you know, a bicep curl, whatever floats your boat. We, we don't have to... Yeah. Or just a roar, just a... Rah. A primeval roar yeah. echoing across the lanes of Great Britain. Ah, oh, it's a GTCC member. <laughs> well, maybe, yeah, maybe we can just have another poll because they seemed to work out well last time, so... Actually, that's a good idea, yeah. Send us your suggestions into all the usual places. We want the official sign of greeting when you're out on your bike in your GTCC club jersey and you see another... GTCC club member coming the other way, suitably togged up. Right, yeah, so guys and girls, go out and get your jersey now and we'll crack on with the show. Right, Tom, so it's my turn to pick the topic this week and uh, I've gone for something a bit different, a bit off-piste and thought I'd dig a little deeper. Have you by any chance ever heard about the chimp paradox? Ah, the chimp paradox. Right, there was a time where you couldn't move in cycling for talk of chimps. Chimps on people's shoulders, chimps shouting abuse in people's ears. Like, this whole exciting went chimp crazy at one point. <laughs> it did, didn't it? Yeah, especially on the track, it was full of them. So this is going to be a lesson in psychology in the mind then, is it, this episode? Yeah, pretty much. I thought, you know, we've had a lot of guests talking about roles in cycling or different elements and this and that. As everyone says, there's that top inch which makes all the difference. And I, I truly believe that, actually. You know, when it comes to the big day... You know, everyone's in in top shape. It's not you can't really split them a lot of the time. But then I think it's it's what goes on upstairs, really, in 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 your head, really, that makes a difference. So um, yeah, this episode will be about psychology. Right. I'm sure we'll go a bit deeper into the chimp later. But really, really quickly, for anyone who's not heard of this model before, it's basically a way to help you manage your mind, isn't it, G? So you split the brain into the human, the chimp, and the computer. So in this idea, the human is the rational bit, the chimp is the emotional bit, which works with feelings. But from the outside, G, you always seem super relaxed. So would you consider yourself mentally quite strong? What were you like before that, that time trial on the penultimate day of the tour in 2018, where you've got 33, 34k to go down there in the southwest of France, and you know that the tour is almost there? Were you, were you a little bit nervous on that start line? Come the start line, I was I was okay. For me, I find the the most stressful bit is the time where you have time to think and your mind has time to wander. So throughout the tour, it was it was kind of straightforward. It's just think about the stage was happening, how we wanted to race it. You finish the stage and it's like right, okay, that one's ticked off. Think about the next day and what's happening. And it was a nice little rhythm routine, and then but suddenly you get to the TT and we rode the course in the morning, and then our hotel was quite far away, so. The team sorted out another hotel, which was right at the start, so we didn't have to travel extra distance. And um, I was in the hotel room by myself for a good sort of two and a half hours, and I was trying to fill the time listening to random podcasts. I listened to quite a few, like those thirty for thirty series, and uh, yeah, ESPN ones. That's the one, yeah. And there was some boxing one, I, but 
I can't remember a thing really. Like you know, it was just background noise really, and my mind was just going crazy because it was kind of like I never really wanted to think about it. It was like I could win the Tour de France today, and that's the last thing I wanted to think because then suddenly I would just turn to a a fan, a, a little kid again, and be like, "Holy shit! Like this is this is big time now." This you know, yeah, I just didn't want to go there. So as I say, I tried to listen to stuff, and I remember Brad once actually. There was some cartoon thing. I don't know if it was like, oh, I forget what it is. It's something like The Simpsons. It wasn't, but whenever he sees that, he's like, oh, I hate this. I watched this before, like, the Olympics one year, and it just reminds me of being stressed. Wow. And I can kind of relate to that a little bit now, because every time I just see that 30 for 30 series thing, it just takes me back to that hotel room, just desperately trying to think about anything else. But then once you go to the start, you kind of, as a chimp paradox, you know, part of it, part of your brain, the computer part, which is the automatic, it just goes and you just do autopilot almost, you know. So once you're at the start, it's kind of okay. You get into that routine, you, you, you do your normal stuff, you get to the, the start at the same time before your actual start time every time you do a time trial. So you kind of, you know what you're doing. You know, you're warming up, you're having your coffee, you know, you, you just have it all set out. And then you do your warm-up, you ride to the start, and then you sit down and you've got like about two minutes, three minutes before you actually get up. I see Tom Dumoulin, you say, hello, you know, have a good one. Hopefully not too good, but, you know, <laughs> have a good one. And then you sit down and then that's the danger point again for me, kind of like it was on the team pursuit when you sat waiting to get up to the track. And you're just trying to think, then you're just thinking about the race. So I had my plan for the race, you know, it was, we split it up into maybe sort of 10 different sections of the 30 odd K and just go through every section in your head, just visualizing it, just thinking about it. And then once you're on the start ramp, it's kind of, it's all right again. You're still going through that process. Like, well, this is how I want to ride the first K or whatever. And and then the beep start. And then uh, the guy, you know, who always stands there with his hand right in front of your face, like with the five, four, three, or, you know, what is it? Sank, cat. <laughs> See, I'm, I'm fluent, me. In French. <laughs> Miracle you got off the ramp that day. <laughs> I know, yeah, yeah. Good job I could speak French, eh? And then... Uh, yeah, that that was it. You're away, and then you're kind of in it. Then, but I think as I've said in previous podcasts, like you do have a lot more time to think in a road race or a time trial compared to the track. But yeah, it was just sticking to that plan. I knew exactly what to do. I had that little back wheel slide, back wheel twitch into one of the corners. Oh, the twitch that actually made me a bit more nervous. Well, I was feeling like really good though. Like I was just on a day where I was just floating around. So I was just like, right, I'm just going to put out the power on the flat and the you know the climbs or whatever, and then every corner I'm going to take half speed just to be sure but then that kind of makes it a bit worse then as well because you're thinking about it even more rather than just racing it like you would normally and that last descent I just went down there so slow because I think it was still a little (laughs) damp there's quite a few corners but normally you could just take them pretty much you wouldn't have to break so much really but I was breaking for everything and uh and then finally it with a 500 meters to go shouting down the radio to Nico who was the DS like Nico if I won the tour and he was like yes yes gee you've won the tour and it was just like yeah unbelievable and then that's when the whole emotion come out then so for the whole race you, you well you're not even thinking of the end product you're thinking about that day you're thinking oh yeah I just want to stay in contention here you're not getting carried away with, with anything and there's so much you know stuff going on around you but you're just staying in that sort of frame of mind and then suddenly it's all over you know and, and you've won it and then you're just like holy shit I just won the tour and uh, you know Sars there didn't even know Sars was going to be there and then 
yeah, then you you cry on international TV. So yeah, like a baby, like a baby. Yeah, in a good way. <laughs> yeah, it was it was special though. This is going to be a great episode. Let's get our guest on. Hello, um, hello there. What voice do you want me to do? We will do a little bit. I'll just do my voice. Do I? your voice. Yeah, thanks. Hello, I'm Joe Marlow. People think I hate people, but I don't. <laughs> I actually love interaction with people. I love finding out what jobs they do and whether I could do what they do. The Joe Marlow Show. Joe Marlow Show. With new episodes every Wednesday. The GTCC are delighted to be sponsored by our friends at Amp Human. They're dedicated to helping athletes at all levels achieve their potential, even amateurs like me. Amp's flagship product, PR Lotion, is the world's first and only lotion to deliver the natural electrolyte bicarb to the body. Now, gee, this all sounds quite fancy, but you've been using it for, what, a couple of years now? Does it help? Yeah, definitely, and it's not just any old ad this either you know to try and get a bit of cash in to help produce the pod but i genuinely feel like it does help kind of lather it on wherever you want whatever muscles are working so yeah bang it all over my legs for any hard session or uh, yeah time trial well there's studies as well that show a 50 percent reduction in muscle soreness when using pr lotion and you can benefit too with 25% off your next purchase using the code GTCC25. That's the letters GTCC and the number 25. Just visit amphuman.com forward slash GTCC and start training with your PR lotion today. So Tom, you might have guessed it, but today's guest is a psychiatrist who's renowned for his books about the chimps and also working with elite athletes. So he's worked with the likes of Ronnie O'Sullivan, UK Athletics, England Rugby, England Football, although I'm not sure how well that one went, but um, we won't go there. (laughs) Uh, British Cycling and, of course, me. So welcome our guest today, Dr. Steve Peters. Thanks for inviting me. Good guest, G. I I couldn't help myself with a, a little dig at England Football there. But um, that actually wasn't much to do with you because didn't you do some stuff for them about penalties or something? Um, I worked with them, but uh, each team that you work with gives you so much access. It varies terrifically in how you function within that team. I've got a feeling that was that was the one where it didn't get to penalties, where it just it just it was just Iceland. Yeah, it didn't get to penalties. <laughs> it was just Iceland, no penalties. It was more when I work with people. It's more you work with individuals rather than entire teams. Um, you can do both, but you know. Realistically, I think the best way I work is individuals. I've got loads of questions, Steve, because this, this fascinates me, this topic. Right, the first one, like we talk a lot about having a strong mind, don't we? It's one of those phrases you hear quite a lot. But what, what does that actually mean? I mean, this is going to be like a potted version because obviously I'm going to do it very black and white, but the shades are grey, so there's going to be a lot of devil in the detail and, and people listening will probably end up saying that doesn't answer the question, it just gives me more. <laughs> um, it depends on the person. If you're saying like somebody wants to have, say, uh, resilience, where most people know what that means roughly, it means if something throws you out in life, you can bounce back uh, and it doesn't put you off. Uh, so if an athlete said, I want to be resilient, it might be... If in their competition they've been like wrong-footed, they made an error, uh, there's something unfair happened in it, these kind of things, they want to bounce back immediately. 
or if they're down in a competition, they want to not look at the scoreline, but actually look at the process of what they're doing. So when you look at that, that's what sports people tend to mean by resilience. Uh, whereas the general public will mean emotional stability. Because generally speaking, when people come through the door and they're not sports people, they, they will ask me about how do I manage my, my thinking, my behaviours, my emotions, particularly emotions. So, Steve, talking about, well, I'll say normal people, but um, non-sports people. Typical people. Typical people. Before you started working with sports people, you actually, am I right in thinking you worked in Rampton? And it was one of the things you had to do, basically say if someone was actually mentally ill or just evil? What? <laughs> it's not quite the medical terms we use, but I know where you're going. <laughs> so Rampton is a secure hospital in Britain. Uh, and if you've got people who have transgressed the law, and, and generally it's severe transgression, it's not just like thieving, uh, it would be murder or attempted murder, things like this. And the idea is to do an assessment on these guys to see, is it the case that these guys are fixed in their position or can we actually change them and get them back out into society? But coming into sport was an accident. Um, I was working then, I'm still at Sheffield University, and I tried to help medical students, these are training doctors, to understand what's going on in their heads and what's going on in patients' heads. When I did the chimp model, which was my sort of like, how do we make it really fun for the students but accessible, because it's a serious area, obviously, uh, then I took that into the hospital world, not sport. Sport hijacked it. It's got to be one of the great career jumps, G, hasn't it? When you go from, from working with serial killers to working with Garrett Thomas. Well, people said to me, you know, athletes and psychopaths, yeah, yeah. <laughs> similar, similar. I mean, people are people, you know, it's whether they've got a conscience or not. So you've got to then decide, you know, I work a lot. I've worked with the police recently doing work on, on gangs and uh, obviously crime and, and, and the drug world. And you've got to look and say when you assess somebody, I know this sounds very black and white, has this person got morals and a conscience or did they lack that? And then you're going to treat them very differently. Who, out of all the cyclists you've worked with, Steve, who had the most robust mental fitness? Who was the one who didn't really even seem to need you? Because you, you wouldn't approach cyclists. When you were working with the, track, the British no. track team, you would wait for them to knock on your door, wouldn't you? Yeah, I think it's, for me, it's just the way I work. It may be different for other people, but I don't like to impose. I don't. I just think people come to me if they want me. They know I'm around as long as I'm visible. Um, it's very hard because obviously as a doctor, I have to abide by confidentiality. So I do have a lot of athletes who say, no, I don't want it to be public. I understand that because there still is a bit of a stigma. But the one I probably would use, which people will know, is Chris Hoy. Chris was never in a bad place. He was always in a good place. A, a really genuinely nice guy and he came to me not because he was in a bad place but he was intrigued to say how do I operate my mind to do the following things so he bought in and was brilliant I mean brilliant to work with and took it very seriously you obviously get close to a lot of athletes then or or just yeah like it must be hard to sort of like be really invested in them but also keeping it professional at the same time then like is that hard? It is hard. And I think it's a fault that we can get as psychs, whether we're psychologists, psychiatrists or supporters, counsellors, is you've got to be very careful not to cross your boundaries. And I think that one way to keep your boundaries is don't open up to someone and use them as some kind of therapy for yourself. And I think the difference for me is you stay personable, but not personal. But it is difficult. So unlike my clinics in hospital, you're there in front of them 24-7, you still have to retain, in my opinion, that professional stance. 
Uh, do you find it hard as well? You know, when you're on, on camp with people for so long as well, and I remember, like, me and Ed used to kind of joke about it back in, like, pre-Beijing, really. Like, if we walk into dinner, like, you'd know instantly, well, he's confident, or, God, he's, he looks flaky today, or, you know, just, just read people instantaneously and just sort of... Do you find yourself doing that a lot? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I can switch off, and, and if I go to, like, a social gathering with friends then they'll comment about somebody being agitated and they say, well, you must have seen it. And I don't because I switch off. But it's our mother training camp. Then, yeah, you do. That's my job. So I would watch as people come in, watch who's engaging, watch who isn't. But you get to know your athletes. So you might have an athlete here that is quite emotionally up and down. So for him, it would be like normal and I wouldn't get concerned. Whereas other athletes are constantly quite proactive and buoyant and positive and suddenly you see this quietness appear that's when you try and just have a nudge and just have a chat and just say everything going all right and then you you give them that opening a chance to chat to chat to you and if they don't want to then step back or or do what dave would do with me is we do a talk cycling's a wonderful sport but it's quite weird in places as well isn't it so someone like Geraint now he's a, a road rider you know a stage might last for four or five hours that's an awful long time to be thinking about your performance Certainly compared to, I guess, a footballer or, or a snooker player, I guess there is the, the weight before a match. But to be actually in that contest for that period of time, it's, it's, it feels quite unique to cycling. I mean, every sport's unique, but then people within the sport are unique. So what one man will say to me is terrible, another will say is great. But everybody claims their sport is the, the most pressured. Everybody. Do they? I don't anyone who says mine's an easy one. So I'll give you two, two people I've worked with that, a public so lee westwood in golf might say to me uh in between the golf you've got all this time to think before the next hit and then i'll get ronnie saying yeah but people interfere with my ball they, they come in and they knock it around i'm competing with someone a golfer nobody comes and pulls the stick from you <laughs> the golf club and oh, pulls the ball away no that doesn't happen so they claim that then i get the tennis player saying yeah but try try hitting the ball within seconds you have to think while it's coming at you. So everybody claims their sport is the hardest. Everybody. Uh, I don't honestly think I've worked with a sports person who says, yeah, mine's pretty straightforward. Cyc- cycling is, e- is harder though, isn't it, Steve? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because Geraint actually physically suffers, Steve, doesn't he? Like, no disrespect to, to any snooker player. I love snooker. And the, the same for the other sports you've mentioned. But, but golf, unless something is biomechanically gone dramatically wrong in the course of your round, you're not going through physical pain. And snooker, you're not going through physical you're pain. You're not, but then I, I don't think a marathon runner finds it comfortable. Well, all right, good example. <laughs> <laughs> a marathon runner would be an agony. And we all know if you want to know the sport that says the man killer, it's 400 metres. Yeah, or four hurdles, even worse. You could argue any way. You know, the sprinters then get ribbed by the distance runners who say they finish their training in less than two minutes. Yeah, they do. Chris, I... Chris always gets up, does a standing half and thinks he's had a hard time. Jeepers. <laughs> <laughs> you go out and do these repeat, repeat day after day, whereas you couldn't physically do a, a kilo on the bike day after day. You couldn't do that. Your body won't give you that ability. So you have to rest up. You can't do time trials every day. So I think you could argue anything. I mean, I learned a lot. When you go to sport, you always get astounded at what you learn. So, for example, with snooker, same with Ronnie, it shocked me that there were so many variables. I just thought you hit the ball. Uh, but it goes on the table. The cloth gets replaced all the time. It goes on uh, the humidity. They're, they're overthinking that, Steve. Come on. And then, 
Come and then on. actually going to do the world championships, <laughs> they have to practice because you're on your feet for hours and hours and hours repeatedly. I am joking, obviously, but to be fair, I'm not standing long enough to... It takes me forever just to pop one ball, so, yeah. I, I do accept what you say, but if you were to say to me, would I rather play snooker for four hours or would I rather ride up some brutal alkaline climbs for four hours. I still can't help but think the snooker might be slightly easier on me the next day. But I, listen, you're the expert, Steve, so I do, I do take on board what you're saying. Um, just thinking about the different people you've worked with and specifically cycling, how much difference does the mental side of it make? So let's say you had someone who had Geraint's physical abilities but didn't have his mental strength. Is that the difference between not just winning races but, but being in, in elite races? I think some people will say to you, it's everything, and others say it's nothing. And and that could be actually true in both cases. So you will get elite athletes who just get on with the process and they don't think about it. So for them, it's really irrelevant, the mental side. Whereas an athlete who overthinks it is likely to say to me, without the training on the mental side, I'm just going to get nowhere. Steve, seeing we're on the subject of me, remember we're on my podcast as well, so I can edit out the answer if I don't like it. But... uh <laughs> What was your first impression of me then when you saw me? You were only a very young man then. You were very young because uh, I can't believe this. The first time I went into British Cycling was in 2001. So it's 20 years ago. Um, so I've been working with Dave 20 years now. And you came in in the academy, uh, an amazing group of young men. Uh, and you, I think you had Rod as your coach then, didn't you? Yeah, we did. Me, Cav, Ed. That's right. Yeah. And we met him on those little rooms around the track at the top. Um, you turned out to be an amazing group, you know, because uh, you well, you did. You all went on to become the superstars. Did you think we would then when you met us? Or were you just like, these are just normal blokes that could go anyway? Or were you like, maybe that one might make it more than that one? Or Well, I can, I can only speak for what I do, because at the time, you know, I would turn to Rod and say, it's not my job, I don't want to cross my boundary, but Rod would say to me, this is the talent they've got, and you were all going to go in slightly different directions. So I look at the mental side of it and think, where are these young men at? Um, and there was a general engagement from everybody. I mean, I know it was sort of imposed on you, because at that point, Dave was saying, you must speak to them. But uh, there was a lot of respect given, there was a lot of banter, but there was a lot of seriousness, and... I think it showed that of that group, I'd say uh, four of you continued with me for the next, what, 10, 15, 20 years. So that's brilliant. So it was an engagement. Yeah, you were serious guys. And for me, someone that, even if they're not into the psych side, who says, no, we want to do this, we want to see if there's an edge on it, it's, it boards well, doesn't it? You think this is a serious athlete. They're looking for the gains. Let's flip that round as well then. So, G, what, when you first met Steve, what did you think? Uh, I thought he was a, well, I don't want this to sound bad, but like a typical doctor, like he was medical. Um, so I've met, obviously since meeting Steve back, back in the day, I've met a few, um, like sports psychologists and I've always sort of preferred Steve's, as he said at the start, really is sort of, I can't remember the term you used, but it's sort of like black and white approach. Basically, he just sort of says it as it is, knocks you over the head of a shovel, basically, and just like, you're like, oh, shit, yeah, that, yeah. And then it's just instant. Like, And then some guys, I don't know, other psychologists I've worked with are a bit more sort of pally or personal or, I don't know, or just the language they use is different. And just with Steve, I find, yeah, his approach for me is sort of the best way. Was there much pushback, G, because, from from other riders, because... 
Steve, by your own admission, you've never ridden a single lap of a velodrome. I could imagine, gee, there might be some riders, maybe some of the younger ones, who would just who would say quite incorrectly, "Who the hell is this guy?" To be honest, not at all. Like I think if Steve came in and started telling us how to race, and you know, it's uphill finish, you need to do this, you need to do that, I'd be a bit like, "Eh?" Like, but he was purely just, you know, more how you thought and how you, you know, what you wanted to think and how you dealt with in situations. And yeah, I think. Yeah, as Steve says, some people just didn't really engage and felt they didn't need to. But yeah, I don't think anyone thought it was just a load of. Uh, well, they might have back back in the day, I, but people I've spoke to have, don't really think that anyway. Yeah. So you would say, Steve, if, if there's there's people listening to this, members of the GTCC, the Garrett Thomas Cycling Club, who enjoy riding at an amateur level, they might do the occasional sporty, they might do some racing. The stuff that you've done with elite riders and the velodrome on the road. Can some of that be applied to amateur riders? Yeah, absolutely. Because let's say that we've got an amateur rider who's coming to work with me. I would do exactly what I've done with the elite riders because to me, it doesn't matter what level they're at. There may be some additional pressures. Maybe you argue that if you're at the Olympic Games and you've got multi-millions of people watching, it's a bit more pressure if you're in a local you know, ride and there's a few people watching. But I think the pressure to the person is the same because they'll still have the same fears of, will I be able to manage this? Will I look foolish? They all come in with very similar type of thoughts in the head, which is a, a normal expectation from your brain. Your brain is meant to be doing this. So my work with them would be to first explore what it is they've come to me about, which is could be anything, but if it's um, like a fear, just a general fear that gets so anxious, then we look at what are their beliefs underpinning that anxiety? And then let's just start breaking the beliefs down, turning their beliefs around. Okay, so G, you know how this works. At this point in the pod, we generally try and get some advice from you for our listeners. So maybe since we've got Steve here, I can ask for some advice from both of you. If I give you some scenarios that listeners to this podcast, members of the GTCC might go through, maybe we can get the the benefit of both your, your wisdom and experience. So the first scenario I'm going to give you both it's cold and wet outside. A member of the GTCC has got absolutely no motivation. This is a good one. I remember, well, I've been, I've chatted to Steve about this already in the past. He says motivation doesn't come into it, Tom. If you've got your goal and you're committed to your goal and you want to go out there and do it, then you just get it done. Hey, he's a good student, isn't he? <laughs> At the same time, just purely from a professional athlete, uh, you can always adapt your training. You don't have to get out and get soaking wet for two hours. You can always jump on Zwift and do a nice sweat in the on the turbo or something and be productive in a different way. Again, it's like Garrett saying, I'm very black and white on this to try and drive the point so clearly. What has your feeling got to do with it? It's what you want to do. If you say, I want to go out there, then get on the bike and go out there. So learn how to, as a skill, to put your feelings in a box and get on the bike and commit to it. So it's about commitment. So I don't allow my life to be ruled by how I feel. It's your chimp, Tom. Don't engage with your chimp. Uh, the, the chimp, just to explain, in case people think, what is this? The front of the brain here, just around here, the orbital frontal cortex, that part of the brain is very uh, emotionally driven and very impulsive. And that drives motivation. Clearly, if it sees a reward, then it wants. If it doesn't, it won't. But it's also fickle because it goes with moods. It works based on emotion. So even it's thinking well. So when it sees wet roads and cold, and it sees that and says, clearly it's not going to be nice, which it isn't. And so it just says, this isn't right. I'm not in the mood to do this. 
However, if you're saying, yeah, but now I've weighed it up, now you've moved your blood supply to the top of your head, so the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, which I class as the human, that part of the brain doesn't work with emotion like that. It, what it says is, what do I want to achieve? Let me get on with it. Let me follow the process, and then I'll see you at the end of it. So if I have to answer, say, 50 emails, I wouldn't get it done. If I go on motivation, definitely my chimp brain would be saying, do something different, you know? Uh, and then it would rationalize and say, you don't have to answer this. Just delete some. Say you never got them. So that's the kind of brain it would try and do to me. Whereas I morally say, no chance. Uh, we, we've got a privilege to work with people. We have to do this. Part of your job, either retire or do the job. So I sit down, put the chimp away, and just start doing the emails. And if then thoughts come into my head saying, this is really tedious, I, I just block them. But that's the skill that I've had to build up on so that I do things that I don't necessarily want to do and I use commitment to do it. So had I been a bike rider and it was pouring with rain uh, and I thought, I need to do this, whether it's training or racing or whatever, then I will do it. Uh, because again, I'm generalising, but successful people work with commitment. They don't work with when I'm in the right mood. Okay, I'm going to scratch off one of the other scenarios I would have given you there, which was going to be, how someone should deal on that, say the morning of a, of a big race or a sportive or whatever it is, and part of their brain is telling them, listen, this, you should be afraid this is going to hurt. Because I'll probably file that one under the motivation one. No, no, I'm going to pick that up. These are what I'm saying, that, that wouldn't work. So the way the brain works, if you then try and box that, which I might say, if my chimp gets out of the box and says, no, it's not good enough, you can't just put me in a box, because I have a question here, and that is, you know, I'm in a big race and I'm not sure I'm going to cope with this race. I'm not sure I'll make the distance. I'm not sure I'll be able to cope with the results. I can't put it in a box then if it refuses to get in a box. So now we've got to change tax and work with the brain. You can't force your brain if there's rules. The rule is if the chimp is boxable, fine. If it isn't and it comes out, then you must put those fears on the table. Now, I do know there'll be some sports psychologists, and I've got a number of friends with sports psychologists, who will say, no, 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 I tell them to do not concentrate on that, concentrate on positive thinking. My understanding of the brain from the neuroscience is that's not the way the brain works. If you do that, it will come back and haunt you. It will not give way. If it works for you, great. Uh, but the rules of the brain appear that if the chimp gets out of the box again, you must put it on the table and work through the negatives and say, let's look at worst scenarios. Let's look at what I'll do to deal with that worst scenario. And then when we've put them to bed with reality and truth, not things like, oh, I think you can do it, that's useless. Uh, no chimp's going to get back in the box for that. You have to give it reality such as, yes, we can fail. Yes, that can happen, but we're not going to die. It's not the end of the world. That the chimp can't argue with because it's the truth. Hey, Tom, I'm not too sure about all these questions, so I don't want my fellow GC rivals getting all these tips now. <laughs> I, want, I want their chimps. That's true. Yeah, I want their chimps to run wild. Chimps clambering all over them. Yeah, <laughs> to Geraint's rivals. Let the chimp out, it does a brilliant job. <laughs> if you are one of Geraint's GC rivals, um, please stop this podcast while I ask one more scenario. <laughs> the scenario is this, and we can all relate to this. Mid-ride, you're just in bits. You're feeling terrible, and you're just thinking, I'm not sure I can make this. You feel sick, there's nothing in the legs, there might even be a headwind. Basically, it's all, it's all come crashing down around your ears and you're just, you started reaching for your back pocket and you're just tapping your, your, your jersey back pockets to see if you remembered your credit card and then you're going to reach for the other back pocket and get your smartphone and phone the local taxi service and ask for an estate vehicle to pick you up. So 
the first thing I'd say is if I'm working with someone who's not one of his rivals, <laughs> um, I wouldn't be in that situation where we didn't have a plan. So I do a lot of pre-planning to say, right, so let, let's look at scenarios you're going to meet for sure, and let's look at ones you may not meet, uh, but let's have a plan. So that when you do get to that situation, you're not there completely hijacked because the way the brain works, what your experience is normal, all right, they may not be helpful, but they're normal. The chimp brain, the way it works simply is it cannot make a decision unless it consults the third system, which is the computer. Now, if you've not programmed anything, so you didn't really think about this, then it comes back empty and says, pick the phone up and you'll pick the phone up. And only when you get home will you think, why did I do this? And the answer was because you didn't prepare. So the computer wasn't ready. You might say, surely the human in you can, top of your head can come in. The rules are when that chimp realizes it's sinking, it actually annihilates your thinking. So it prevents you making rational decisions. So it's very clever. It makes sure you're not going to hijack it. So it's going to get what it wants. But when it goes to the computer, if we had prepared it with some beliefs which, which resonate with the person, then the computer will change the chimp's mind. If you now spin through the computer and it's got in the computer, it's very likely you'll get to this point, but keep going. Just keep going, even if it's failing, because I'd rather finish than quit. So if that's already programmed and we've visualized it, so you've programmed it in, then it's very likely when you get to that point, you'll be able to flick straight through and it happens within a fifth of a second and you'll say to me, my experience is, it was weird. I did get that uneasiness, but somehow I just kept going. I just thought, you know, there was some resilience suddenly. And what you're really saying is it worked. We programmed it well enough for it to take over and alter the decision of the chimp. Now, you may say, what if that doesn't work? Is there another way? So I'm going to give you an extreme, a different type. Some people in life learn to laugh. And instead of getting upset, they learn to laugh at situations and at themselves. Because we know that laughter is the only thing that uh, resets the brain into human mode. Because the chimp gets disarmed by laughter. If we can genuinely laugh at ourselves or situations, the fear and the panic goes because the chimp can't cope with that. Yeah, I, it makes sense to me. I would just say, though, Tom, a bit more simple would be leave your cards and your phone at home. If you're going to do that loop, just get it done. <laughs> you, can't, you can't just stop and quit. Like You're going to feel so good when you get home and you've done it and you'll have a story to tell. Be bloody hard doing Let me just time. stop you because this as a teaching point. <laughs> that's what you've just done. You see, what Geraint has got in his head is exactly that belief. He's laughed at himself, but he also had this thing of you want to finish the race. It's better to finish it than give up. No one does that. So he's got both of those in his head. So you can see how he may not have planned that, but somehow his brain's worked it out and it's put it in. So whenever his chip kicks, it's likely to meet that and it's likely that he won't falter. What I would do now is say to him, okay, now I'm going to put you into the Tour de France. Now I'm going to say, now it happens, because there's an added thing now. Under pressure, it may change its way of working. So it may be able to laugh up to a certain point, but then say, no, it isn't laughable. It's my career, it's finances, it's the team, it's Britain. It's Suddenly there's all this we have to look at before he gets on the bike in the Tour. But again, he may not. He may just do the same in the Tour. It's getting to know your athletes and knowing what how their mind works and they, and they get to know it themselves, giving them that insight. Yeah, I think I would laugh eventually, not the immediate aftermath. But at the same time, um, like the whole bottle thing, we've talked about that bottle in the bastard Giro quite a lot on this pod over the last few weeks. But um, you can laugh eventually, 
but I think it does reinforce the fact of never stopping, never giving up. I think having a team that, like you say, you know, all that pressure and things, it's more, yeah, that team is there to work for me and I'm there to try and do my best and I'm more likely to give up when it's just a training ride on my own rather than at the height of, you know, the biggest race in the world. And, and at the risk of doing a public analysis, I think Garrett's giving this away. If I listen, you can see what his beliefs are. I mean, everyone has an ego, but he's not an ego, man. He's not saying it's about me. He's saying it's about the team. He's just told you that. If it's about me, then okay, maybe I would probably, but I can't let a team down. So he's an ideal team rider. You think, yeah, this is the guy you want with you because he's not going to let you down. And you get this on the track where I'm more familiar where you get 100-meter runners who are powerful, but put them in a relay and they get a different gear. And you just think, how do they do it? And they're actually, the chimp, which is all seen as negative, actually gives them that endurance power that they, they do, cannot let the team down. I'm feeling quite good about myself now. Steve, you can come again. But I know you're a busy man and you need to get going, but there's definitely one thing I need to, to bring up, which... It's not necessarily about um, psychology, really, but I can assume the listeners now can see you're very medical and logical, think about things very straightforward, black and white. The one thing I've... I remember you telling me this, on a, I think it was on a flight back from somewhere, and afterwards I was like, is he just winding me up now? Is this some sort of test? Because you were telling me about the time when you saw a ghost in your old house. Yeah, it was that some of the lads had start asking, what do you think about ghosts? And, and I'm saying, they don't make sense. And to me, rationally speaking, as a scientist, you know, I like the evidence first. So it, it, I say, well, it, you know, if they're around, there'd be lots of video footage. Otherwise, it, it doesn't really resonate with me. So I can't see it. Um, but they challenged. And then I had this awkward experience some years ago now. Uh, it was about 6.30 in the morning. I heard a noise in the house. I lived in a big house had two guests in the house at the time. As I opened the door at 6.30, I saw this young woman running down the, the main stairs in, in the house, and I assumed it was the girl that was staying there. She ran down, it was very fast, it was the person running down the stairs, disappeared underneath the stairs, went round the corner, and, and I waited, she didn't come back, and I thought, oh, I don't know what's wrong, so I went down the stairs and didn't find her anywhere, I thought, this is odd. Uh, and then at breakfast, when they got up, I said, you know, was everything okay? And she said, we never left the room. Uh, now, I didn't believe that. And for some reason, I didn't know why she would want to deceive me. So I just kept really saying this impossible. It was about probably a few months later that there was a, an elderly lady who used to live in the house. It was an old house, so it was well over 100 year old. And so she came to the house and I didn't say anything. I didn't say anything because I felt it was a bit awkward because I was thinking, I'm not sure what I witnessed. In the conversation, she was telling me about how the house ran and Oh, they used to have two girls living in the house as maids. And uh, she said, oh, well, they, they didn't wear black and white. They insisted they wore green. And that was the first time I was really shocked because what I'd said to the couple that were in the house is when the girl ran down the stairs, I said, well, I'll tell you what you were wearing. You were wearing this green uniform. And she said, I don't even like green, so I haven't got anything green. So very strange. I kick myself now for not shouting out, is everything okay? Or following her, but... At the time, I just thought, well, she's obviously running downstairs for a reason. There you go, GTCC members. Ghosts are real. <laughs> if you are paranormal and you're somehow listening uh, to this uh, this paranormal podcast and you want to put your, your name in the hat as being the official GTCC spook or ghost, <laughs> let us know. Just please don't let us know in person because it would scare the hell out of me and G. <laughs> Leave a good review as well. Leave a good review. <laughs> Yeah, in ectoplasm. 
Oh, cheers, Steve. That was uh, well. That was great. Thanks for coming on and sharing some of your uh, well work and thoughts. And thanks very much for inviting me. And uh, can I just round up by saying, um, if you think the mental side is important, then get hold of someone, a sports psychologist, a, a psychologist, somebody who can work with you and try it. But if this didn't resonate with you, don't get worried about it. Just uh, whatever I've said, throw it out of the rubbish if it doesn't work. I'm happy with that. Cheers, Steve. Thanks a lot. Cheers, Steve. Tom, so luckily the country's starting to open up a bit now, but are you still finding time to Zwift? Yeah, I'm still doing it, G, and there's something pretty nice that I've only just realised so you know when you go onto the companion app and you go to notifications and then people can follow you or you can ask to follow certain people. There's so many online things we do where it's at least a little bit toxic around the edges where, you know, if you put something on social media, someone somewhere wants to have a whinge about it or call you out or something like that. Zwift seems to be a really friendly, supportive place. Like no one has abused me for something I've said, for the speed I ride, for the mileage I do. <laughs> yeah, no, very true. Very true. Very safe and enjoyable experiences, Zwift, isn't it? Absolutely. Well, if you fancy giving Zwift a try, just go to Zwift.com and you can start your own free trial. And also, you do that, you can join our club ride every Wednesday at six o'clock in the evening. Everyone is welcome. Tom, it's time for any other business now. Our club's coming along pretty well now, isn't it? Yeah, how many members do you think we've got? What? Hundreds? Thousands? Yeah, it's got to be in thousands, members-wise, yeah. But even people that you've appointed, you must have appointed... What's this, <laughs> episode 16? You must have appointed at least three times that. <laughs> I think there's a possibility we are, we've are we accidentally become the biggest cycling club in the world. Biggest committee, that's for sure, yeah. The, the, the <laughs> biggest committee that does nothing. Well, surprisingly enough, I've got another appointment, G, to take uh, some more of the weight off my shoulders. This first appointment is Pete Barlow. Now, Pete would like to be our official club coffee shop ambassador. Now, we obviously did our whole episode on cafes, didn't we, earlier in the series with Vinny and Bill. So if you haven't heard that, go back and have a little listen. But Pete would like to be the ambassador for Buckinghamshire, Berkshire and Oxfordshire. He's apparently won an award for his knowledge of coffee stops in his cycling club in Beaconsfield. Pete says, as I have very high standards, you would be assured of great coffee and cakes forward slash cake. Mike Hedger says he's known Pete for years and can't imagine anyone more qualified for that position. That's a good endorsement, Pete. I think you're in. Yeah, I agree. Can't beat a good recommended uh, coffee shop. Good coffee, good cake. Can't complain. Next up is a position which, in a weird way, G, we sort of hope won't be around for much longer. So Carl Harrow would like to be our COVID marshal. He says this is the work he does on a daily basis. He could make sure masks are on or available, give general COVID advice. Um, I think we should give him this role, G. And because he's volunteered for a not particularly pleasant role, when COVID finally does one, should we just reassign him to a slightly more pleasant role? Yeah, that sounds good to me. As long as he's not like um, our high-vis jacket clipboard man, what's it? The health and safety dude? Yeah, that's a good point. And finally, Paul McGlone has got back in touch. Now, we appointed Paul as one of our social secretaries, but we needed confirmation on where he lived. And so Paul has got back and says he lives in Wilmslow, just up the road from me. Now, this means I think we've got two social secretaries for the North West because we've got Jeff Abram 
also from this neck of the woods. Paul's suggestion to sort this one out, G, a race up the brickworks or the cat and fiddle with me as the judge. What do you reckon? Oh, yeah. I like the sounds of that. Maybe you can take Carl along with you as well. Make sure it's all COVID safe. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, these two can have a big... Uh, well, maybe you could race as well. Just, you know, and I was then waiting if, for that. If they both beat you, then they can both have the job. Yeah, okay, fair enough. I think I would prefer Britworks to Cat and Fiddle. So if people uh, don't live in the northwest, the Cat and Fiddle's a bigger road, isn't it? You get a few more wagons going up it across from Mac to Bucks. And the Britworks is a little bit more B-road, a bit more twisty and turny, a bit more atmospheric, maybe. Yeah, nice. I like that. Maybe we can get some uh, someone to film it as well, live feed it, you know, get it out on Facebook Live. Oh, fans will be going nuts for that, mate. No pressure, Paul. No pressure, Jeff. We just need a, uh, who's up for coming along and videoing that and then, uh, yeah, film it live. Perfect. Finally, Tom, let's do some shout outs. Yeah, we've had this in from Lawrence G. He got in touch asking for help in setting some new goals. He says, I'm 40 this year and only recently got into cycling. I bought myself my first decent road bike in January. I'm doing well at smashing my PBs and I've got a relatively hilly 50 kilometre training route. I broke my two hour target recently but I'm wondering what goals I should set next. What do you reckon? Well, fair play to be smashing your PBs for a start. But I don't know, maybe some sort of sportive or some sort of ride that you can go and do. Obviously, hopefully that sort of stuff comes back soon. But yeah, maybe like, I don't know. You know, like if you're training for something like a marathon or th- something, it gives you that extra little impetus. So yeah, maybe go and try and find something which uh, is a big challenge and get you out of bed in the morning. I wonder, G, if, I mean, this will sound impossible to him at the moment, but if you can get to doing 50K in, what, three or four months, it's not impossible to aim for a little cheeky ton up, isn't it? A little cheeky 100 miler towards the end of the year, maybe September time? Yeah, for sure. Like, if he's doing 50K in under two hours, this hilly, yeah. You only got to do that three times. Yeah, that sounds bad now. And a, and a bit more. <laughs> Lawrence, I reckon you can do it. Maybe have that as one of your targets. Keep us posted. Let us know how you get on and we can offer a few more tips as you, as you go along on your journey. Yeah, good luck. Let's finish with a podcast recommendation then. What have you got for us this week? So, G, I know you love your rugby and this is a cracker all about French rugby. So, former France international Benjamin Kaiser and Scotland international Johnny Beattie have a new podcast with all the juiciest stories and the best interviews from inside the crazy culture of French rugby. Not a baguette in sight, not a cliche. This is all original stuff. Go and search Le French Rugby Podcast to join in. Allez, Le Bleu! See you later. That was the Garrett Thomas Cycling Club. Thanks to Pete Barlow and Carl Harrow. Thanks to our head of social media, Fionn Clark. Our head of music, Emma Hickman treasurer diane barker and our honorary president mike cart and of course most of all to you for listening we'll see you next time crowd network a place where you belong